Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Buzicruz and I am your host for today's episode. And I am very excited to be chatting with Kevin Kelly, who is a higher education consultant and a teacher at San Francisco State University. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. Kevin, I'd love for you to, your, your LinkedIn profile is one of those profiles that you have to like click to expand to see all of your credentials and all the, the many things that you have done um, in your career to date. But I'd love for you to just sort of give us a, a Cliff's Notes overview of who you are, what you're doing now, and, and sort of how you got there. I think one of my friends said it best. I'm a seeker, so I'm hmm. always on the always on the lookout for new opportunities. And um, frankly, I, I fell into education, and then I fell into education technology. So uh, when I left college, I I had taken the LSAT, and I was looking at law firms, and even worked at one for a couple of years to see if that's what I wanted to do. And while I was there, I was teaching people in the break room uh, Spanish and French because they wanted to go on trips. And I knew both languages and it led to a job teaching Spanish and French at a preschool. And while wow. I was there, I got really frustrated with the software the kids were using in the after school time. And so I joined an instructional technologies program so I could make educational software for teachers by teachers that would have not just Mr. Potato Head is fun and, and funny, but would also provide strong instruction. And then from there, I ended up uh, co-authoring a grant before I even graduated. So when I got my diploma, I also got a job half-time leading a U.S. Department of Education grant teaching K-12 teachers how to use technology in the classroom. And because I only had funding for half a position, uh, basically I started my career in education always doing side gigs. Wow. And, uh, I actually have a book out right now. It came out in January called Going Alt-Ac, A Guide to Alternative Academic Careers. And that I just happened into mine by accident, like I said. Um, but yeah, I, I've led units uh, on campuses, San Francisco State. I, I led their faculty development unit and then uh, was one of the managers of the academic technology team. I went and got uh, my doctorate and... Uh, left the campus a little after that to work for some startups in the higher ed scene. And, and then now I'm consulting full time. And so it's just kind of been kind of Mr. Toad's wild ride for careers really. <laughs> but I would say one of the key factors has been having a large network. I like talking to people. My wife thinks it's a little nutty that I'll just anybody on the street, I'll talk to them, but they, it always leads to exciting opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think back to, I think I read a blog post that you wrote and I stumbled upon this, uh, it's Phil on, uh, Phil on ed tech blog found mm -hmm. you made my way over to your LinkedIn profile was very impressed by what I saw and thought I had to, I have to talk to this guy, I sent you a, a, a LinkedIn um, a request and, with a little bit of context and you accepted it and here we are chatting. So, uh, you know, you, uh, you certainly live up to, at least in my experience of being willing to talk to, to just about anyone. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, I'd love for you, I mean, your career again is just, uh, it's so varied. Uh, it's exciting. I, it, it, you know, education has sort of been this, uh, this uh, compass guiding you throughout this these you know various pursuits um, that you have sought. I'd I'd love for you to just talk 
at sort of like the 30,000 foot level on some of the lessons that you have learned over the years uh, with respect to perpetuating innovation in higher ed. So whether this was when you were leading a startup, whether this was through uh, instructional uh, course design at, uh, at um, a number of institutions, I bet you've learned a lot about how to sort of move the needle and and be progressive in a space that is notoriously archaic. Um, And I'd love for you to just share a couple of those lessons with us, uh, if you wouldn't mind. You bet. Well, actually, as luck would have it, I gave a presentation about this recently. Um, And the context is that I've been working for about three years with a community college district in Oakland, California. And together we've... uh, done things like help them shift their learning management system, which is the one-stop shopping for the educational activities students pursue, uh, constructed by the, uh, the teachers. Um, and then we created a distance education plan, which had equity as one of the two core values. And when we put that in there, we decided we didn't want to just make it a, a core value that sits in a document on a shelf, but we wanted to, to live it. So we started trying to find ways to help teachers infuse equity into their courses so mm. that every, every student could learn free from biases and assumptions and institutional barriers that negatively impact their, let's say, their opportunities and their achievement. And so the lessons that I learned from those three years and going from that distance education plan to creating the first ever rubric to help instructors think about equity in a concrete manner, not just an abstract manner, all the way to the current day, which it's turned into what they're calling the equity initiative. Um, I pulled six lessons from that from my role as someone on the outside kind of helping them as a consultant. And so summing it up pretty quickly, one, you have to become a champion for making the change, whether you're internal or external to the organization big efforts that you believe in, if you're going to follow Gandhi's be the change you want to see in the world, then you have to become a champion for that change. Next, you have to be prepared to create something new. We knew we wanted to help those instructors infuse equity into their courses. And when we couldn't find any resources that would help people do it, we just went and made it. Next, you have to actively solicit different points of view. If you believe the research by Duhigg uh, for Google, um, the most successful teams are are the most diverse uh, so that you end up getting lots of contrasting points of view that help you come up with the best possible end result. Um, Fourth, work with purpose to promote the change, that intentionality uh, and marketing, let's say, the promotional aspects helps validate um, the work that you've done. And then next, I've already talked about networks, but using your network to actually scale the change so that um, more people can take advantage of the work and it doesn't sit hidden behind just a few walls. And last but not least, um, be ready to adapt that change to give it new meaning for new audiences um, because there's never a one-size-fits-all solution. So um, Right now, for instance, we created that rubric for instructors, but now I'm readapting it for campuses so that student services staff, financial aid um, staff, and others who work with students outside the course experience can also be thinking about how they can make it a more equitable experience. 
Thank you for sharing all of that with us. That is uh, very, very well said. And I think we could talk all day about each one of those uh, those steps. <laughs> yes. Um, what, but, you know, one of the things that, uh, that uh, strikes me as, as I listen to you is sort of this idea of, you know, in education, there's we have access to a lot of information um, and, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of money spent in uh, th- across the country, throughout the world, right, in trying to make better sense of how do we make access to education more sustainable? How do we make it more equitable? Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, th- I love about the enrollment marketing space and really what Enrollify is trying to do here is take a lot of these, um, this data, right. And, and help turn it into as, as you have done in this particular context into something that's actually actionable. So how do you take these, this, these theories that are really, really, really important? How do you break it down so that change can actually happen within the context of our classrooms? And so what I this, this is a loose uh, loose connection to and, a, and somewhat of a loose uh, transition here, but what I really want to talk to you about today is a recent blog post you wrote on college the the plethora of college student surveys that have come out recently on how students are responding to COVID nineteen, um, specifically their their fears, their concerns, um, et cetera, and why I think that there's at least a loose uh, correlation to to what you're kind of hitting on right now, is that. There is so much information out there right now on the results of these surveys, so many statistics flying around, and I think for your average enrollment marketer, it can be really, really overwhelming to know how do you make sense of all of this? How do you make sense of this data in a constructive, actionable context? And so I would love for you uh, to just share with us a little bit about what you're seeing as a result of spending some time kind of uh, combing through this analysis and these and a number of, of college student COVID-19 surveys. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, just what you've seen and what, if anything, is particularly notable and what synergies really exist in terms of the, the outcomes of these surveys? Well, I, I'll start by giving your audience a little background. There are were about 11 surveys that I went through and some of them were as few as about 500 college students and some were as many as 25,000. So they range from one individual campus like Skyline College here in the San Francisco Bay Area to nationwide surveys put out by um, Georgetown or Educause or Brightspot, Simpson, Scarborough, you name it. And so the key for me is it's always been important to include the student perspective. I teach a class called How to Learn with Your Mobile Device, and it's specific to students and helping them become better learners. And so I view that uh, lens with a lot of what I do. And so, you know, I was one of the early people to advocate for asking students what they think because we often make these decisions about students without actually talking to them. And what you'll notice is a lot of outside organizations did these surveys and some did in conjunction with institutions and some of them did them kind of apart from institutions. Um, So you you have different groups who might've 
lent their survey to, let's say, 40 different institutions and then aggregated all the information and put it together for them. Um, but I think that is in part because as campuses and districts at the community college level and even statewide systems grappled with the spring and COVID, they were focused on how do we keep the courses going, period. And they didn't really have time to, to, to put into surveys. And so these external organizations ended up supporting them in that way. Some of the key takeaways, though, I think come from surveys like the ones that the Student Senate for the Community College System in California did. Um, they, they took their results, they held a webinar to report out to the world and came up with a plan to advocate for students with the system-wide academic senate and other groups. And so to me, that's they had a plan. It wasn't just, hey, let's collect some data and see what we get. Sure. And so I would argue for enrollment groups and marketing and communication groups on campuses, the same thing should be true. And I actually would tell them um, a couple things. One, tell students what you know, and then find out what they need. And we can get into that a little bit more later. But these particular surveys um, did a good job of getting at specific questions. And so some really wanted to know what students' plans for the fall were. Some wanted to know how students were doing with respect to their mental state in the spring uh, and, and everything in between. And so that helps paint a bigger picture. If you're familiar with the concept of netiquette, which is etiquette for being on the internet. Uh-huh. Um, netiquette. The very fir- yeah. The very first rule is remember the human. And they, you know, say that in the context of, you know, don't use all caps. It's something called flaming and all these things. But I always take it one step further and ask people to remember there is a human at the other end of that internet connection. And so let's think about the human needs in addition to the academic needs and everything else. I love that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Were there any particular questions uh, in these surveys that you thought were especially interesting and and or unique I'm sure there was uh, a fair amount of overlap but did any were there any uh, a, you know, even just a couple of questions that uh, that stood out to you I would say you know some of them were pretty standard hey what's causing you stress and and some of them did a better job than others of trying to make ties between students mental states and things like their financial status or their academic dreams and whether or not they feel they'll be able to reach them things like that I think some of the interesting things were not only the questions themselves but how they actually got additional demographic data to help understand what different types of people are thinking hmm. um, because it's not it's not an equal or a similar experience for every student and so the higher ed data sharing consortium and brightspot and um maybe um, the student senate from community college system in California, they all gathered additional information like whether or not they're first-generation students, whether or not they're part-time, whether or not they are working, if they're over 25. So they're they're able to disaggregate that data in a way. And some of the most compelling data is from that HEDS group, the Higher Ed Data Sharing Group, that non-binary students of color feel 
the least supported by their campuses. And so that's something that we need to know uh, because we don't always look at things beyond ethnicity or age or things like that. And we need to make sure we're supporting specific groups with um, additional uh, resources if that's what they need. All right, everyone, this is just a quick reminder to take a note on your notepad or make a little uh, a reminder on your phone, whatever it is, to head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify after today's episode to download their free resource on does your college website need a chatbot? Again, that's mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify. All right, back to the conversation. For en enrollment management teams, one of the things that I know is a, a struggle right now is trying to make sense of how do you communicate well in a moment like this to lots and lots of different constituencies. And I think one of the the, the challenges that I'm seeing people uh, uh, discuss on LinkedIn, that I'm seeing from people emailing us directly, is you know how what is sort of the right mix of communications right now? Like how do you not blow people's, you know, uh, inboxes up with tons and tons, like what, what is the right balance and what is the right tone right now, um, to, to strike. And I think that what you're sort of touching on right now is, is really this tension. Um, and this tension that a lot of folks who are, again, mostly commuting with prospective students, you know, and, or, uh, students who have deposited for, for the fall is trying to understand how frequently to communicate, how to communicate, what additional resources do these students need right now, and how can educational institutions uh, provide these resources, especially for students that haven't actually started uh, at the institution. So that's that's a, a lot of the tension that that we're at least seeing from from our vantage point right now. Sure. And my niece just graduated high school last week. And so she's been really looking forward to college. I'm super excited because she picked San Francisco State. So she ah, wants to play she wants to play competitive college level softball and and they pulled her in there as a pitcher. But most of her experience this fall is going to be virtual. So I don't wow. I don't necessarily know if she's gonna have a season or I, I don't know how that's gonna work. And and um, you know, when I texted her about it, she had a I hope that this virus is gone by the time I graduate college. So she understands this is a long haul. It's not something that, you know, it's going to end quickly. But here are a couple of things that I would tell enrollment management and marketing and communications teams at universities right now. Students and their parents want to make decisions about the fall, but they're hindered by ambiguity. And it's very easy to tell why, because campuses aren't quite sure what the virus is going to do. So they're not quite sure what they're going to do. So when you're wondering, like, how often do we reach out and what do we say? I would say just stay in touch because right now, uh, what is what are these surveys telling us about what students really missed in the spring? They missed human connection. They missed seeing mm. their friends, their, their, their classmates, and even the instructors to some extent. Like two, uh, three, three quarters of the students said that they, they missed interacting with their professors. And so a couple ideas I have are like work with some other units like the student leadership group on campus and start creating a sense of campus community right now based on what's going to happen at your campus, what format classes are going to take, send out some Wi-Fi hotspots and some Chromebooks to level the playing field. Uh, in my blog post that you referenced, I mentioned that uh, 
one student said she didn't get her Chromebook until one month after classes restarted after the campus closed. Wow. And so he had to borrow laptops from friends and neighbors in order to keep going to school. And for her, it's an equity issue because she is using community college courses to help her gain upward mobility. And if she has to drop out or stop out so she can go to work and help support her family, then, you know, that's deferring her dream. <laughs> and so when you do that leveling the playing field. I also encourage campuses to send absolutely everybody some t-shirts or some swag and have them wear it on Zoom. Take some group photos <clears throat> and post them on Instagram and say, hey, we're proud that we have an incoming class. We're sad that we're not going to be able to meet them in person just yet, but we're going to do everything we can to make them feel like they're part of a group and not having this individualized experience that's alone and, and isolated. Um, another thing that I would say is work with academic technology and academic support teams like counselors or tutors to build an awesome new student orientation. Hmm. And I would say make it equal parts team building and fun, like some virtual escape rooms that students can sign up to do and meet new students in their class, and maybe some online or hybrid learning readiness building so that they're getting skills like self-directed learning, time management, or managing new technologies for learning. Because students, many of them are great with technology, not all of them, but many of them are great with technology, but they're not familiar with using it for learning purposes, which is what my class is all about. And then last but not least, <clears throat> enrollment te teams might borrow from an idea I put out on the, the, the interwebs about um, virtual graduation where students create videos about what they took from their experience over the last four or five, six years. And these could act like testimonials to recruit new students for future cohorts. Um, because when you have a normal graduation ceremony, students get maybe 15 seconds to walk across a, a stage and pick up a piece of paper and turn a tassel to the other side. But you give them three to five minutes to share their story about what their college experience was like, especially when you're talking about first-generation students and people who have overcome hardships to get to where they are. Um, that's powerful. So much gold there. Uh, fantastic. I, I, I love those ideas and I really hope that some of our listeners tap into them. Virtual graduation ideas is in particular uh, fantastic. And I love the the virtual escape room um, concept. It'd be really neat to see that to see that fleshed out. Um, I want to I want to just circle back quickly and talk about sort of these four aggregate needs that you highlight again in this in the aforementioned blog posts on Phil on Tech. And you talk about uh, the mental health support, the financial guidance and support, the academic support, uh, and the academic engagement that um, is is highlighted in sort of these what do student need uh, what do students need surveys. Can you uh, quickly unpack what unpack what these surveys uh, highlight about each of these needs and what you think is sort of like the the most important takeaway um, for enrollment marketers to to sort of be aware of as they're engaging with accepted students and as they begin to engage with prospective students for this coming spring and, and even the fall of 2021? Sure. Well, going kind of, I don't know if it's the order that you mentioned them, but I can go in the order. I talked about them in the blog post. For mental health support, it's important to make sure that A, students don't always know they need it, and then they don't always know what to do when they do need it. And the ones that have spoken in uh, text format, either verbally or written, have said that the experience of 
having, let's say, therapy online is is completely different than in person. And so trying to bridge the gap and say, well, some is better than none. So how do we get students the, the help that they need? How do we help them develop practices that will support them, stress management class uh, uh, practices, breathing exercises. Um, there's something called mindfulness-based stress reduction that some people follow. Um, but And then how do we get students a chance to have some sort of peer support? Uh, along the lines of what I mentioned in my last answer, um, I've been advocating that campuses take some of their work-study money since if they're not going to have classes on campus, that money may go unused and turn it into money for online learning mentors so that hmm. veteran veteran students who have been in many online classes, let's say five or more, can act as mentors for students who are just coming to campus, haven't taken a lot of online courses, and help bridge that gap for those students who may be underprepared for an online learning experience. Um, there are groups out there um, like the support network, which helps high schools and colleges develop and implement peer support programs on top of that. And those are more geared toward just helping students cope. Um, in terms of financial guidance, it's the same answer that we talked about earlier. Uh, communicate early and often because students really want to know how things are going to go with respect to financial aid. Um, some of the qualitative data from these surveys has shown that students are saying, hey, you're still asking me for my tuition for the fall, but you haven't even told me what fall is going to be look like, what's going to look like. And, you know, how many millions of people are unemployed across the country right now, their parents who may be helping to contribute to their um, college uh, career may not, they may not have that money right now. So sure. how, how do we spread out that load so that students don't feel like they're possibly going to be giving up their academic dreams because of the state of the United States right now. Um, so again, finding ways to, you know, point them to things like the CARES Act funding, letting them know what that money can be used for and how they can get it, um, letting students know what the, the status is for tuition and, and, and all those things. If you can buy a car with no money down for three months right now, you should be able to go to school with at least some understanding that people know you'll be good for the money. We just want you to, to join us. Um, in terms of academic support, um, <clears throat> again, some of the equity issues revolve around technology, but some of the equity issues revolve around students just don't always have a place to sit and study quietly. And so giving students some strategies, uh, and my next blog post is actually going to be how do we support students prepare for the fall? And mm. part of it's going to be around giving students strategies, which might involve negotiating with your family or roommates uh, some quiet hours so that you can get some work done online. But we have to recognize that some of these students are sheltering in place or staying at home with other adults who are working with K-12 and college students who are studying, and they may only have a limited number of devices. And so some students may be using a smartphone, some students may have inadequate internet, uh, and so we need to make sure we're creating experiences that people can do even if they're an essential worker and can't get to a class period on Zoom at a specific time and place. Um, and then last but not least, that academic engagement you brought up, we, we know from the surveys, like I said before, students are really craving that interactivity. And so 
changing the way we do things. It's not going to be a 45-minute lecture with no breaks. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be 10-minute mini lectures with activities that you might use a breakout room or you might have a chat uh, or a poll, but engaging students in uh, with each other and then giving them opportunities to work together, even if it's something like a work sprint I did with my class this year, um, where you basically set aside a two-hour block of time and every half hour, you start by having students state their intentions, and then they work for 25 minutes, and then they take a five-minute break and share how they did. Uh, they, they, the students that took play, took sorry, the students that took part of the, in these work sprints at the end of the semester said it was really strange because you're sitting in silence with 10 other people, yeah. but it. They they felt more accountable because they were working in a group. They felt that by stating their intentions, they were able to create a smaller chunk of work. And so they found themselves to be possibly the most productive they've been in a really difficult semester, uh, just joining these these time slots that we set aside to help students get work done. Kevin, I'm going to ask you to pause real quickly. I think I figured out this technical issue, and I'm going to replace this SD card real quickly, okay? Can you just give me 30 seconds? You bet. Thank you. So, Kevin, I've got two final questions for you. Uh, the first one is, how can enrollment marketers, who, again, you know, are our are, are core listeners here, how can they make sense of this data of, of these insights that you're that you're sharing uh, and what might they be able to do to inform the campaigns that they plan to run over the summer and and into the fall in other words if you were heading up enrollment management and and marcom at a university right now how would you adjust recruitment campaigns student engagement campaigns in light of what we're learning through these survey results Sure. Well, if we start from the being human and working out, right now students are reporting high levels of stress and anxiety and being overwhelmed. So um, putting confidence in your messaging, um, letting students know that you're there for them, uh, making it clear that you're going to light up the runway so they can get help wherever they need it. Right now students are reporting they're having a hard time finding support other than their individual instructors. And so having it real easy for them to find people who can answer their questions about joining a particular campus, whether it be financial aid, whether it be um, enrollment and registration, whether it be um, academic counseling, that should all be, there should be one-stop shopping, some sort of concierge that helps them find who they need and get them to that person right away. Um, in terms of the, taking this data and going beyond how students are feeling mentally, um, and looking at their plans, again, it's that ambiguity and trying to do your best to provide some sort of uh, concrete details, even if you say, hey, we're going we're gonna to have a plan in these, this many days, but until then, um, we want to help you prepare for anything. We want you to be a resilient student, and, and that's the type of campus we are. We're, we're invested in making sure students succeed. Uh, that's going to go a long way. Again, if you look at the data from these surveys, students feel most confident in campuses that communicate well, that communicate uh, on a regular basis, and have some sort of idea of what's going to go on, even if they're still figuring out as they go. Um, I'll stop there and see what you have to say. 
Fin no, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the the big challenges that uh, that one of the big challenges that enrollment management teams are are wrestling with is how what is the balance between for for lack of a, a technical term here COVID-19 marketing COVID-19 enrollment marketing and kind of traditional all right well you know we we got to talk about something other than the virus and I think one of the the big challenges from a from a spend standpoint is how do you communicate with through digital formats how do you communicate through uh, email communications in a way that isn't to COVID nineteen e again for lack of a better uh, for lack of a technical term there, um, but then how do you ensure that you're being empathetic, right? And I think that what mm -hmm. is so hard for people and and a lot of the again the feedback that we're getting is help. You know how do I? I've got students saying that they're scared, they're upset. I've got other students saying like I'm just tired of hearing about this. How do you produce any semblance of normalcy? for the state for the sake of the student uh in this moment like is that is that possible like how do you inspire hope in messaging amidst a world that is for lack of a better term chaotic yeah well i would say yes you can have a consistent message both during and after a pandemic and i would say if you focus in on you are our core priority. We're going to do everything we can to help you reach your academic goals. It doesn't matter. It just what that task is that you complete to help that student is, may change in an emergency. It might be more urgent or something like that. But the core message that we are here for you and we are we are prepared to determine what you need and make sure you get it. Um, that can be a message no matter when you put it out. Um, in terms of the the timing and and making sure that students feel uh, that you understand them. Going beyond emails is going to be key because not every student uses them. In my own class, I use Remind.com, which is an opt-in text message uh, service that's free. And basically, I sent out my course announcements via text message to those students who wanted it. Out of 50 students, about 20 took me up on it. So wow. that's a you know, uh, and that's about average for my class, which usually has 50 to 100 students, about a 40% pickup rate there. And so if you want to meet students where they are, then you want to be hitting Instagram, you want to be hitting text messages for those who say they will take them. Those you probably want to do less often than an email, uh, just so you're not pest pestering them in their pocket. But you definitely want them to know you're thinking about them. And, and again, balancing that need between we want this to be light. We want this to be fun. We want you to know that we're here for you and we're going to meet your academic goals um, and then take it from there. I'd love to just close. Well, first of all, thank you for that. I, I think that those uh, strategies are absolutely important and and worth considering, um, especially as, as you know, Gen Z in particular uh, is less responsive to email communications. Um, I would love to close out our conversation and I'm going to put you on the spot here, Kevin. Um, but I'd love to just actually hear a little bit more about your recent book, um, going alt, uh, AC. Can you just, uh, give us sort of the, uh, the, the 
a rough overview of what this book is. I understand that it's a, a partnership with a, a couple other folks. Can you help us understand just at a high level sort of the, the purpose of the book, why you wrote it, and where folks uh, might be able to find it if it's, if it's assuming it's available? It is available right now. Uh, Going Alt-Ac, a guide to alternative academic careers, came out in January by Stylus. Um, I think the go, uh, G Alt-Ac is the code if you want a discount. Ah, there you go. <laughs> but, G Alt-Ac. Okay. Yeah. But um, why did we write it? Because the nature of higher education is changing. So um, almost 200,000 people every year are getting a doctorate or some other terminal degree, and that's not even counting masters and other uh, graduate degrees. And there are not 200,000 full-time tenure track teaching jobs on university and community college campuses. So we need to start preparing graduate students to think about what their careers might look like if they choose not to or cannot find um, a a tenure track teaching job. And so that was the core mission of the book is to provide a path for people to consider, um, regardless of their life circumstances, what would it look like if I wanted to work at a place with an academic mission, but it wasn't a college or university? Or what if I wanted to work at a college or university, but I didn't want to be in one of these full-time teaching roles? What, what else is out there? And so we actually have a Q&A session tomorrow, an online event for free, um, that I can send the link to you, but um, we'll be answering questions. About 150 people have signed up so far just to, to ask about what the job market's like and, um, and what's, how they can translate their academic skills into other professions uh, to make themselves more marketable and, and things like that. Fantastic. I, I've learned a lot just by reading the the few posts of yours that I have read. If folks want to stay connected with you, uh, read what you, uh, the thought leadership that you put out, you know, purchase this book, uh, whatever it might be, even even just to connect with you, what's the best way for, for people to reach you? Uh, I've got a LinkedIn profile, uh, uh, slash Kevin-Kelly-EDD, and then my Twitter handle is at Kevin Kelly zero because one through infinity were taken, but zero was open. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to have conversations with people who have uh, great ideas or great questions. And so bring it on. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time, Kevin, and look forward to staying in touch. Super. Thanks for having me. If you are an enrollment marketer, working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast please reach out directly to me at zach z-a-c-h at enrollify.org we sincerely look forward to working with you to make enrollify the most trusted go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there
Thanks for tuning into today's episode, friends. Just one final reminder, if you wanna learn more about conversational marketing and wanna understand how your school can best leverage uh, conversational marketing strategies and maybe best leverage a chatbot to increase student engagement on your site, head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify. Again, that's mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify and download their free resource on does your college website need a chatbot? Again, you get to interact with a chatbot on the actual landing page, which is awesome. Um, So head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify and download the resource. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.